and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to women at the top of their respective games about their passions, their battles, and what makes them tick. Today I'm joined by Emma Barnett. Since joining the BBC as Five Lives Morning presenter, Emma has quickly carved herself out of reputation as one of the corporation's toughest interviewers. She's drawn comparisons to Andrew Neil, and when she stood in for another Andrew, Andrew Marr, on the BBC's flagship political show, she stole the limelight to the extent that next week Ma had to make clear he had no plans to go full Emma Barnett on his interviewees. Prior to that, Emma was head of the women's section at The Telegraph and a presenter at LBC. So thank you for joining us today, Emma. Thank you. Before we get on to the present and your turn on the Ma show, as you mentioned, I wonder if you could talk us through a bit about how you got to the point you are now. So when you first decided you wanted to be a journalist, I know acting was perhaps your first love. Yes, and then somebody pointed out to me I'd be a waitress most of the year and I thought, I'm mm, not sure I'll be very good at that because I lasted one shift at ZZ's in Manchester and then had to jack it in. So journalism seemed like a good way of still being able to perform if you're doing it on air, obviously, as you're doing here with me on a microphone in the lovely Spectator office. But also I really liked the idea of listening to people's stories. I was very interested actually in feature journalism. I wasn't interested in news that much. I did study politics at university. I was at Nottingham History and Politics. I was mainly interested in politics. But then I went off to Cardiff to do the postgrad diploma there and I actually did it in magazine journalism. Didn't do it in newspaper journalism, didn't do it in broadcast journalism. And I was really setting myself up to write all about the arts and culture and all of that. And then my first job was at Media Week and I was a news reporter. And it was the it was the job I could get. It was very exciting. And in a weird way, I didn't know how good that would be that you could be 22 and you had a license to go and interview the editors of newspapers or magazines or go talk to the head of TV networks. My first beat was actually radio. So I was writing about radio and getting to know the radio industry. And then I thought to myself, actually, I'd quite like to do this. So that, I mean, you know, it was a long road from that point. But I got into the news side of it without much intention, actually, but found I was quite good at getting people to tell me things. Yeah, and we both worked together mm. at the Telegraph, different desks. It was. But... You were out partying, and I was, yeah. you know, trying to get some scoops in the different way, in the technology world, actually. You had quite an impressive feat there, and it was often the talk of the newsroom, because there was a rumour that you basically managed to get a whole new department, basically by just going in for a meeting with the editor and saying, you need a women's section, and you walk out and you've gone from being a, you know, a reporter, correspondent, to being basically head of department and seat at the top table. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't really a rumour. I think I'll I'll (laughs) confirm that that's what happened. But I did have a plan. So I went in to see the then editor, Tony Gallagher, and I felt that we had a lot of women, especially younger women, coming to the website. And we weren't doing that much for them. And you'll know this, obviously, working for a print title, often what you put in print versus what you put online, different things fly. So I just thought there was a gap there. And I put together a plan and I also went to the commercial department first because you need to make sure that there'll actually be some money attached to it. And I made what I hoped was a compelling case. The way you described it sounds really quick, but it was about six months. In, Maybe in that's when the rumour part comes in. <laughs> I had to prove a few things first. And then, yeah, we did actually launch it. And Emma, at the point you're managing a digital wing of the Telegraph, did you find that there were ever any frictions with the print sections? Well, I think what was interesting about The Telegraph and and especially doing a feminist section at a right-wing newspaper is a lot of people would say, well, you you know, that's the wrong place to do that. You you can't do that. But the irony is those people don't realise that 
actually a lot of the time at right-wing organized right-wing newspapers or those right of center you can write anything that's the whole point you can annoy everyone you can do the left-wing columnists you can do the right-wing columnists you can do the center columnists. so i had a huge amount of fun getting people to write for that section who would never have dreamt of writing for the daily telegraph before and because it was online it was so liberating and we were if you like doing whatever we like with journalistic merit, I would argue. And also we had a lot of fun. We made a lot of people laugh as well. I mean, it did contain the Telegraph's first explicit sex section. I say explicit in both senses of the word, but explicitly called sex. I mean, it was always called love before. So I think, you know, online and SEO, you, you can't be as subtle. And then just on the women's section, did you, I mean, as you say, there are some people say, oh, it's a right-wing paper. And others would also say, it's probably predominantly men. I just wondered, did you ever feel like you had pushback or obstacles in getting a women's section? Or did you find that everyone actually quite supportive? I think it was it was more supportive than most people would think from the outset. Actually, there was a spirit of entrepreneurialism there that if you... And I think, actually, to be a journalist, we can come on to this a bit more, you do need to be entrepreneurial. I, I have created quite a few of the jobs I've held. They didn't exist before I had them. I don't mean that in a way like you know I'm a huge maverick but meaning you have to sort of create the next steps it's not like being a lawyer or a doctor where there's an easy tree to climb you have to think about what's next for you and so I did find it quite an entrepreneurial place I I mean I know I'm not going to say it was it was easy though there were obstacles and and I'm not sure that there wouldn't be those obstacles at other places that were either left-wing or maybe more female dominated it wasn't that it was just difficult to do you know I did it basically on my own at first and then by stealth managed to get people who quite liked it and wanted to write. And there were a lot of younger women at the paper and and men wrote for it as well, who didn't really have an outlet. And so they wanted to write. You know, I used to get pitched mainly in the toilet. So, you know, people would come up to me. I mean, it's a really classy place to get some of your best ideas. I find. Best stories. But I'd say, well, would you write that? And then they would. And then while you were at the Telegraph, you started doing your LBC show. Yes. And what time slot was that? (laughs) So the first stint on LBC. The only way to do live radio or know if you can cope is to do it. It's quite nail-biting as a situation. And it's quite public. So it was one till five. But it fitted quite well because at the time I was the Telegraph's tech correspondent. I was writing mainly about technology and I'd spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley. And so I timed this first week for when I would be going to San Francisco so at the end of the week. Yes. And so I'd go in and do a shift at the Telegraph, go home and sleep for like an hour or an hour or two. And then I'd go in one till five. You'd have to get in earlier though. And I literally had one producer and he was sort of 22 year old lovely guy. And we were both looking at each other across the glass. And it's absolutely nail biting. But by the end of the week, I was so tired. I slept on the flight to San Francisco very well. But that was my audition week. Yeah, and then, and then you got a better slot? Or? I did. Eventually I got the, what would be called, I don't know, Sunday drive time slot, which was far more sociable hours. But no, every, everyone on that first week was lined up to call, from my best friend who was getting in from a night out to my grandpa who doesn't really sleep and is like 92, sitting in Manchester, waiting to help me. But he did establish on the phone, because obviously it goes through to a producer, I am Emma's grandfather, and then they were like, we cannot put you on air. <laughs> he did ring in about a health issue, being a former GP. That's so sweet, but hopefully you could given him the advice privately well to be fair I did say if no one rings you have to ring and I think he thought I had a gap (laughs) which brings us kind of to how you got to where you are today so obviously the BBC show so how did that come about was I mean clearly that was the LBC which would you say which was the platform for that so there was a stage in the middle where I started making documentaries for Radio 4 and that was off the back of my tech stuff that expertise which was a lovely 
thing to actually learn how to do make longer form radio and and get to tell those stories but when I launched the women's section a wonderful woman called Alice at the BBC asked me to start presenting Women's Hour so she asked me to stand in for Jenny Murray for Jane Garvey I've been a long-term fan of that show. That was quite also, again, a daunting experience to be sat in that seat. And that was where really my live presenting began on the BBC. And then a Sunday night show came up on Five Live called The Hit List, where we did the top 40 news stories, which was a mad but brilliant format. And I did two years of that. And then this show came along on Five Live. And then have you found the BBC? Because since you've been there, you quite quickly managed to basically do many different shows under your five them. And often people are away and getting in there. How do those opportunities come about? Do you put yourself forward or do you wait to be asked? So I did stand in on Newsnight, sort of a year after joining. And that I was asked by the then editor, Ian Katz, if I would stand in. And that came off the back of some successful political interviews during the general election. I think he was thinking that was, you know, it was an exciting time and try some new people. And August is a good time to not book your holiday if you'd quite like to stand in. So that's a top tip. And I was available and, and I did a load of those stints, which was which was interesting. I mean, you know, actually, it's, it's really late at night, that show. You don't quite realise it if you're sat at home slumped. And you think, gosh, these people are still coming out who've been on the Today programme sometimes at six or seven in the morning. And these politicians are still coming out. But it, that was a good thing to do. And then Andrew Marr came up. Actually, it was 11 weeks after I'd given birth and got the telephone call, you know, would you like to come in and stand in for Andrew? And I really would and I really did. But that was a moment where I thought, I have not read about the customs union for the last 11 weeks. I have not thought about the transition to the transition period for 11 weeks. This is going to be interesting. How did you prepare for it? I went in for the first meeting. They're a brilliant team, very small team. I mean, three people who are very quickly kicking around ideas because at that point you don't know who the guests are. So you know you'll get someone from Labour and you know you'll get someone from the Conservatives and maybe there'll be a a third party. But you're just kicking around the big issues. And I genuinely went home that night and I reread 11 weeks worth of news. I stayed up all night. I had to stay up pretty much anyway because of the baby, but I breastfed myself through 11 weeks of news. It worked because you quickly became a Twitter <laughs> sensation. I'm not sure many people could say that. But anyway, yeah, go on. And I really used the, the BBC's, you know, breastfeeding rooms to pump my way through that morning as well. Yeah, go on. But you quickly became a Twitter sensation from your first Marston, with lots of people suggesting that it should become the Emma Barnett show. Was that not exactly what you were expecting? I think if you're going to stand in on something, you've got to make it your own. And I didn't really think about it. Too. I mean, I've watched that show all my life. And before that, I watched Frost. And it's not good really to think about how those people will do it. You've just got to do it how you you do it. I think the most nerve-wracking element actually of the whole thing was it was on Gogglebox two nights later and I was just watching Gogglebox sort of slumped at the end of the week kind of thing, or a few nights later, sorry. And one of them went, who's this Ollie Willoughby type? And then by the end she was like, God, you wouldn't mess with her, would you? And I thought, that's all right then. If they're all right with me, I'm all right with me. So, no, I didn't... The ambition isn't when you're sitting there to become a Twitter storm. The ambition is to get politicians to answer the question in normal English. So moving on to basically lessons from your career so far, you did a TED talk while you were at the Telegraph Mm. and in it you discussed the invisible barriers which leads to women losing custody of their own ambition. What do you think they are? I think sometimes... One area is what I call like poisonous presumptions, the presumption that a woman just wouldn't want to do that extra bit of work or wouldn't even want 
more money or wouldn't even want to spend time away from their child or there are presumptions that are made there's a few there was a couple of studies from Harvard that I cited in this about the presumption that most women who had children wouldn't want the next stage up for instance or that they were happy with doing more at home and actually all of these studies turned in the complete opposite results I think there's also a phenomenon called nice guy misogyny which is the idea that you've got a lovely guy who's your boss he really likes you, you go to the pub with him, you get on with him, he seems great. But he has outdated views of women privately, which leads to you being held back in the workplace without even realising it, because he'll always promote so-and-so over you. Turns out another study on that sort of phenomenon showed that the men with those issues thought companies with predominantly women were less well-run, and they also had housewives for wives. And so those men don't advertise how they feel about women. So they're not doing anything illegal, but they might just hold outdated views and they don't invite you to the golf course. They don't invite you to those extra things. And, you know, obviously some of those other invisible barriers can be other women, you know, and they're quite visible actually, aren't they, sometimes? But, you know, they don't, they don't really... The sisterhood isn't always... The sisterhood isn't always real. Yeah, and what you were saying earlier about kind of creating your own roles, mm. it's interesting because... Like you I... in this podcast. <laughs> women with exactly. balls. Yeah. And I didn't take August off. So Did you not? Right. Still James's column. Okay. Great. I'll stand in for you in August. <laughs> but yeah, so when so looking at that, sometimes it does seem that when women are very ambitious or they put themselves forward a lot, they can be described as words like pushy come to mind. And I was wondering if you've you have had any experience of that when when you've been pushing for things. I mean, I've been told to be more patient by people. I do live life in a slight rush for the next thing. But I think it's it's just quite easy to don't be a dick while you're doing it. You know, you, you can actually be nice to producers. You can actually be nice to people while you're doing it. And I'm not saying I'm a saint by any stretch, but a lot of people do ask me for help or work experience or for the next thing. And I always do that as well. You know, I'm not saying I can always give it, but it's not in my gift a lot of the time. But I, I just think if it's genuinely fueled by wanting to do the next thing but also do it well with the people you are doing it with then you shouldn't get that kickback but I have been told you know you do get told what what's the rush why why are you trying to do this like this just be a bit patient people will come to you but nobody comes to you you've got to go to them and 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 I don't think you you have to make your own luck I don't think it exists otherwise which brings me on to what I was going to say that you said which is basically the most common way women give up their power is by thinking they don't have any that's actually a really nice quote from Alice Walker but I love that quote (laughs) and thank you for thinking I had the wisdom to, to put that sentence together but I do love it and I think also we're obsessed with feeling like we need to be liked you know while I say don't be horrible to people, that's quite a key thing. People could still dislike you. You can't control that. And also people you interview could dislike you afterwards or take it personally. And I don't think that should be the case. I think if you ask fair questions and you try and get answers, that shouldn't be the case. But I think you are disliked more if you are a woman trying to get somewhere, by and large. And you probably have to... The thing I have said, which is my sentence is that I have developed a talent for being disliked at times and when it comes to obviously your day job and your grilling interviews do you you sometimes find that they're surprised by a harsh line of questioning I mean I don't think I am harsh I think I just remember what the question was and if I don't hear the answer then we don't move on for a while and and actually from the public I hear that that's what they would like I'm not doing it to score a point I mean (laughs) Take, just because it, you brought it up, on Andrew Marr interview, the then Culture Secretary, things have changed so much since then, Matt Hancock is no longer <laughs> the Culture Secretary. Exactly. 
actually, if you look at the questions I asked, they're extremely simple. They were the basics. He was discussing a new way of controlling social media companies. I asked how he was going to do that. We didn't get off that for a while. That was Matt Hancock. That was Matt Hancock. How are you going to do that? We didn't get off that for a while because I, I just didn't understand. When are you going to do that? There's, an, there's a consultation. So I didn't understand that. And why are you doing that? And, and so actually those were the questions. So you say a harsh line of questioning. I just don't want to move on to the answers are there. And when it comes to the environment today that we work in, lots of people say things are improving for women in the workplace. And some people put that down to the gender pay gap. Obviously, the government now has, well, not the gap, but the fact the government is now obviously making people announce their gender pay data and looking at, and you signed a group letter about Mm. the BBC's gender pay gap. Do you think that the BBC has listened to the contents of that letter and, and women's concerns? I think the BBC has made a lot of the right noises and I think moving forward it would seem like this hopefully will not be an issue moving forward. How it redresses the balance or the imbalance, sorry I should say, from historical times and and for for that I mean it could be for the last five years a producer's been sitting, a female producer's been sitting next to a male producer earning significantly less for the same job. It, it needs to, as far as I can see, make sure it is going through those claims and doing so at pace. I am hopeful that moving forward it will be different because everything is pointing towards that. But I know, and it's been reported, that there are many cases outstanding. So they have a lot to do going back, it seems, before we get to that more hopeful place in the future. But I feel uncomfortable about the way that women should get equality is to earn less. I mean, that. how does that sound good? I'm not sure. I mean, I know that the BBC itself is under a microscope, as it should be for how it spends its money. But no woman is sitting at home raising a glass of champagne when John Humphreys takes a pay cut. Yeah, how does that benefit her? Now, the final part of this podcast, bringing us just to the, the present day. As we've mentioned, you are now seen as one of the BBC's toughest interviewers. <laughs> Who is it that you kind of look up to and admire within your industry? I mean, of course, in terms of the political interview, Andrew Neil is is the top of his game in many ways. You know, I, I massively enjoy what he does and how he brings people to, you know, to scrutinate, but also with a good sense of humour. I've enjoyed David Dimbleby's work, you know. I'll be intrigued to see who's the new presenter of Question Time. Can uh, be you? Yeah, well, I'd love that. I'd love to be the radical choice. I am a huge fan of Jane Garvey on Woman's Hour. I think she has an attitude that's just brilliant on the radio, you know, a wry smile the whole time. I think that's really important. I love I love Kirsty Young on Desert Island Discs, you know. There's a, there's a range of stuff that I listen to. I mean, I'm listening to a lot of American podcasts at the moment, so that's probably not the right right place to say some of the people I respect there, but those are some of the people that come to mind. And looking at those big interviews that have helped you, I guess, open more doors, one of them was your interview the Prime Minister after that SNAP election where she admitted that she, I think, had shed a tear, one tear. Yeah, no, I remember that quite clearly. Just, yeah, no, but she, she did, she did, she talked about that. Yeah, and you said when you got that interview, you personally had to fight for it, is that fair? I mean, I bid for it, yes. And I had been in conversation with, with her team about doing that. And I think, I mean, I, w- I was making that point, and I think you get the quote from my conversation with the woman in The Times, with Helen Rumbelow in The Times, when she interviewed me, because there is this idea, and, and when Helen asked me about that interview, she said, when you were given that interview with the Prime Minister, there is an idea that interviews with the Prime Ministers are given to people. Well, they may be given 
to people on you know a couple of shows for instance and especially when she wants to say something you know of course that's set up but I wanted to make the point that I had personally gone for that interview because I think it's also good to be transparent about you know it's hard to get these interviews you know that you you pitch you bid you think of ways to to make it that they would want to talk to the audience that you have what was your pitch I thought it was you know five live is across the whole of the UK. It's not the London bubble in any way. And I thought she had a duty to, after that, especially after that election, to talk to a wide section of society about what was going on. I mean, and, and in the sense of my radio show has a lot of time as well. It's not an eight minute, 11 minute or 12 minute, which if you work on some of those shows that you've, you've talked about at the BBC, those are the time limits for interviews. So I said to her, we can record half an hour where you can actually answer the questions and talk more in depth, I would hope. So I I made it a bid for a longer interview, a more in-depth style interview, and that also that we would make sure that the listeners got the chance to speak afterwards and talk about it. Because a lot of... I've noticed that more and more the trend is for big political interviews to be... It was pre-recorded, I would say, because of her schedule... But it was pre-recorded an hour before we went out. It wasn't pre-recorded two days earlier. And I, I would have, we did it as live. And I think that's really important. And I, But a lot of political interviews happen in the vacuum of that show. There's then no, you know, if even, you know, on Andrew Marr, for instance, when I did those interviews, we don't then get what the viewers think and it's on the screen. You can do that on radio. You can yeah. include the listeners. So that was part of the, the pitch. Do you think you managed to kind of bring out a more human side sounds the wrong thing but you know a more sensitive side perhaps well I'd also noticed that all of her previous she'd she'd not done a proper sit down interview up until that point she'd done one at the same time the night before with the sun but she hadn't done a proper broadcast sit down interview since the biggest political gamble of her life which she failed in you know we have to say that it was quite and I think it's no secret that there was very limited access to her before that election and so it was we were entering a new era of May at that point but, you know, I felt that the interviews that she had done, which were quite short, sharp ones, I'd look back at the Channel 4 one that had happened, all of them began by attacking her. Like, Prime Minister, you said you would do this and you didn't do that. Well, how on earth are you going to get anything different or any sort of insight? You know, while I am a political interviewer, a lot of my show, I would say 70% of the rest of my show, it's three hours every day. We can't just do political interviews. I mean, have no listeners. You know, a lot of the show is is human stories, whether that's something high profile that's happened to somebody or just actually, you know, listeners getting in touch with their experiences around a news story. I was interested in, in the human behind it. I always am if I have the time, if it's not an eight, 11 or 12 minute interview. So I thought that I could do a slightly different job because of the time that I could have. And I was very interested to know how it personally feels to stand there and say so confidently... I'm going to do this because I'm so popular right now. I'm going to get a majority. And then slowly the figures start trickling in that it's worse than you possibly could imagine. Nobody seemed to have asked how that felt. You know, not because I need to give a sympathy or I want to give a sympathy. Nothing to do with that. Just, I mean, the humiliation, the feelings. You want to hear how that feels. Not 10 years down the line when she's writing her memoirs. It was interesting for me to sit in her office and hear that. And did you find that was something that she was almost wanting to talk about? Well, listen, when you make a bid, they sort of know the the context of it. She will have been thinking about how to talk about it, of course. It was filmed as well. You can see it on her face. Did she look that comfortable? I mean, she's a woman who likes talking about politics and process. 
she she didn't look like that was something she really wanted to focus on for a long time, but she knew she had to say something to the country. And the other political interview, perhaps, which was most famous for during that period, was in the midst of the snap election campaign with Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. on childcare. And he came a little bit unstuck on his policy, I think you could say. And afterwards, his supporters, I don't think, took very kindly to the fact that he hadn't come across very well in that interview. And he received a fair amount of abuse. And some of it's related to your religion. Some of it was, you know, anti-Zionism. Were you surprised by the backlash? Well, I, I, I also would just clarify one thing that anti-Zionism was really anti-Semitism and and the conflation of those two things right now is really at the heart of the anti-Semitism issue in Labour. I got straight on a train after that to Skegness to try and track down Paul Nuttall, the then leader of UKIP. And I was going to do my show from the Five Live caravan, you know, so it was all glamour going on here, me heading off to Skegness. I was actually quite excited for fish and chips in a bingo hall. And so if I'm honest, my phone was going off the hook and I just turned off notifications. I, I just couldn't be bothered to look at it. What was quite striking about the interview in the aftermath was that Jeremy Corbyn did, to his credit, get up that afternoon, ironically, at a sort of race and religion equalities press thing he'd organised and said, could people lay off me and that it wasn't fair and I was just doing my job and he didn't know the figures. So that was very nice of him and was quite pertinent because of what he was at. The anti-Semitism stuff did take my breath away. I am quite good with the sexist stuff. I'm quite good with criticism. When I say good, I'm just used to it. I've seen it a lot now. got a lot of it running a women's section at The Telegraph. I I don't like to think I live in a country where anti-Semitism is mainstream. And, you know, there's a George Orwell essay about anti-Semitism and the English. And it, I reread it that night because it felt horribly true about it still being there. And that was the only bit that did upset me, yes. I mean, it, just because I think how and why is this still so prevalent? Why did it feel so prevalent? Why was it stick to beat me with? And, you know, I also just think it's so interesting that there are fewer than 250,000 Jews in this country. For the media that anti-Semitism gets and for the anti-Semitism that still seems to happen out of the mouths of people that have a platform, you would think there were millions of Jews for the influence that supposedly this group of people has. I almost want to say, just get over it, right? There's like no Jews, really. You know, if that's the best argument I might have to present, a numbers game, you know, seriously, why does does anyone still hold these views? And if I have to present it with statistics, maybe that can win the argument. I don't know. But I, I didn't at all digest that well. No, that upset me. Do you feel like political discourse has got more tough over the past few years? I, I, I think the thing that seems to come up more and more, which... I think is a real shame is that the suspicion of the interviewer and that especially the BBC have an agenda and having been at the BBC for the minority of my working life then obviously if they learn I was at the Telegraph or I now write a column for the Sunday Times there's then again another suspicion that I am in some way you know aligned with the proprietors of those organizations completely so therefore I'll ask these sorts of questions and I can't remember which show I think it was a news night show but my husband who's really he's much more interested in having a look at this stuff online than I am now he really you know he sends the worst of it to his brother and they have a bit of a whatsapp group about the abuse I get it's quite funny they it's nice what's it called (laughs) (laughs) it's just like barnet shit anyway they watched 
in interest in one of the one of the shows that I did because I had a Labour person on first and all the left wing followers online were like she just hates and then I had a conservative person on it was, and it was exactly the same and then they all started going fair enough she just seems to hate everyone and the thing is it's not about hate it's just about getting answers doing your job exactly so if it does balance out it's okay but I think that suspicion of this wider conspiracy of the mainstream media is definitely more and more and you touched on social media briefly there do you find yourself following it closely when you're at work because there have been some people who say they've actually just had to switch it off because they found it bad for their mental health or so forth when when you're on jobs where you do get a lot of that when you're on air I mean what's lovely about us talking here and it's it's a kind of a live environment is you're not looking at your phone that's the whole point you're in a conversation it's live and your head's completely in it I suppose what has also changed by presenting a live radio show is you have many screens so I have the text console up I can see all the text messages that are coming in and the ones that are safe to say out loud without swear words are greened and they're okay you know they're sort of legal Twitter can't be and I where possible especially when I'm doing an interview that requires sensitivity or total focus, I just turn that particular screen off. But then when I want to see how it's gone down, I will have a look. The point that I'm trying to make is I don't want to be distracted and it is very distracting. And yet at the same time, I think it's really important to get the views in because sometimes they're completely different to how you thought. You know, I can do a very emotional interview with someone and think that everyone at home will be thinking, gosh, that person's really been through it. And then you'll get a load of tweets that say oh, for God's sake, I've heard this before and this person needs to toughen up and I've been through this. And, you know, although that might not be something I might read aloud because it might not have the merit, it's just quite sobering to break your own bubble. But I am also really aware of who you follow and who follows you is its own bubble in itself. So, you know, I have been off for a few months now since I had a child. I'm going back to work soon. And I haven't been on social media all day, every day in the same way I would be for work. And guess what it's all right you know it's a whole world out there it's, it's quite amazing have a real life conversation exactly thank you emma thanks for joining us today thank you very much and you can listen to emma now back on five live as of this week where she has returned from maternity leave and do join us at women of balls in two weeks time where we'll be joined by liz truss the chief secretary to the treasury